0: Hello there, my name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Ask anglers of my generation where much of the best offshore cod fishing in living memory came from, and you're guaranteed to hear a lot of talk regarding the North Sea, particularly the area centred around Whitby, where most of the better known charter boats at the time were based. But after a couple of decades at the top, that crown started to slip overfishing, for the most part commercially, rightly or wrongly, took the brunt of the blame. Then, seemingly from nowhere, around 2005 things suddenly started to pick up again, improving year on year, until now in 2011, the cod are well and truly back. Maybe not to the extent they were in the old glory days, certainly not in terms of individual size, but, nonetheless, they're back. Interestingly, what has also emerged from all this is a very different North Sea rod and line fishery to what had gone before, particularly around the main centres along the Yorkshire coast. When cod population numbers slumped, the traditional techniques of Perks and Muppets became far too labour intensive for the meagre results they could potentially turn up. So new ways of fishing, for the central North Sea area at least, eventually began to be tried. A return to bait fishing was part of that adaptation. Fishing at anchor and uptiding in shore were also drafted in, and on the lure fishing scene a switch from jigging to slowly retrieve soft rubber lures such as shads and jellyworms also brought in their share of the fish. So when the population revival started to climb back, anglers were in a much better position to more fully exploit it, having a variety of new and potentially more attractive weapons in their armoury to add to the traditional techniques associated with the good old days. Today I'm at Amble in Northumberland, which so far as I'm concerned, is one of the North Sea's best kept inshore and offshore sea angling secrets. Few people outside the immediate area seem to know much about the place, and even fewer have ever fished from it. Amble actually is a venue I know reasonably well, having dingy fishing on several occasions on account of it not only offering good fishing, but also good small boat and charter facilities too. A venue that can often be fished in the types of conditions which could so easily rule out leaving harbour elsewhere. In other words, it's got good sheltered fishing both very close into the harbour entrance and to the shore, plus good holding areas further off for when the weather is more settled. That said, having previously trailed my own boat up, this is actually the first time out from the port aboard a charter boat where I'm spending a day in the company of Dave Bilf aboard his offshore 105 upholder, along with Rodney Burge, the boat's previous owner, who was amongst the very first people to experience the bounty of the North Seas offshore wrecks. One thing I found particularly surprising when I picked up the phone to sort out the arrangements with Dave was the accent of the man on the other end of a telephone line very clearly then you're not a local lad. So before we get into the nitty gritty of the fishing itself, tell us a little bit about Dave Bilf, your history such as where you came from and why you decided to set up stall here.
1: Well I moved up here in 1983. My background is engineering. I used to work for an Austrian track maintenance machine manufacturer and during my time as a service engineer I travelled all over the country, right from the top of Scotland Right down to Plymouth and as far as the west coast of Ireland. As I say, I moved up here in 1983. Uh, London was starting to deteriorate, and I was was of the impression that if I could find somewhere nice where I could settle down with a bit of salmon fishing living near the coast, I would move out of London. The uh, price of property up here was a lot cheaper than what it was in London so I moved from London and moved up here and bought quite a nice bungalow So what had you done in terms of fishing prior to that? Well I've always had like small leisure boats, the first boat that I had was just a 16 foot trailer boat and the chartering more or less took off from a hobby the the hobby developed into a business I used to help out on the trawlers doing mechanical work and I used to go crewing on the trawlers for a very short time this offshore 105 is my third charter boat that I've had. The one before that was a, a Colvic Fast Worker, which had twin Perkins engines, and the one before that was a Colvic Watson, 23 foot 6. The first one I could take 8 passengers, the second was 10 passengers, and this one now is now licensed for 10. It was licensed for 12 at one time. I've done my offshore yacht master's certificate with the RLNI, I was a member of the uh, Amble lifeboat crew for 15 years and position on the crew was as navigator. I had a knee replacement in 2008 and I was retired from the crew and I was asked to stay on as deputy
0: launching authority. Now I know that Rodney is probably better placed to answer this particular question so I'll be putting it to him a little later in the interview as well but from your perspective how have things off Amble changed from the early 1980's when you first started fishing here?
1: The fishing fleet has been halved in the time that I've lived here. It was quite a productive port as far as like prawn fishing was concerned. People have had to diversify into other jobs or they've decommissioned their boats. Some people have bought potting boats. And some people have packed up altogether. And how has the fishing itself changed? Well, I think the fishing has improved over the years. The first year I moved here in 1983 it was unbelievable the amount of codlings it used to be, especially for crass to crass and smooth, it be, wouldn't wouldn't be at all unusual like right, for two people in a small boat to catch a box of fish apiece. Last year I think the average for each rod was six, six codlings. And this year I would say it's, it's getting around about ten
0: codlings per person, which is quite respectable in this day and age. I mentioned in my introduction that some of the bigger parts to the south and Whitby in particular, in an attempt to keep the bookings coming in, started looking at other ways of keeping anglers happy, such as fishing areas previously passed over, with techniques such as uptide fishing at anchor. From our earlier chat, it would appear that this has not been the case at Amble, though I believe that you have had a little look at bait fishing, anchoring and uptiding out of curiosity. So can you fill us in on some of the detail behind that? Well. I have anchored on the wrecks. It's very difficult. You couldn't anchor on
1: a wreck with 10 anglers. It'd have to be a very small party. I don't think anglers would pay twice as much as what it would do for a normal charter to anchor over a wreck. Depth of the water here makes the anchoring over the wrecks prohibitive.
0: But when we did anchor over the wrecks, they fish very well. What about anchoring in shore or drift fishing with shads? We have done uptiding in the winter,
1: up until January, like, it's fished very well. We've had some very good fish, very good fishing in December and January, but we don't get the weather. Normally if you get the weather, we don't get the parties, and if you've got the parties, we don't get the weather. So it's a matter of just
0: picking up the phone the, the night before, do you want to go uptiding, and that's the way you have to do it. You mentioned potential problems with the weather, but speaking as a west coast angler... Over here on the east coast, you don't do too badly out of it. The predominant wind direction for the UK, particularly in the winter, is west to southwest, which at Amble is blowing off the land. So providing it's not too strong and there isn't a big residual swell, potentially you can get out, even if you are restricted in range. What then are the chances of getting some worthwhile fishing in over the more sheltered inshore marks? Well, the fishing started early this year, late March, early April we were getting good catches of
1: cod right from mid-April and normally it's the back end of April that we start catching the fish. The best part of the year for like, inshore fishing is I would say the last two weeks in May, the first two weeks in June fishing on the hard
0: ground. All the time there's fish on the hard ground it's hardly worth going out into the wrecks. Give us a rundown then on the general seasonality from when until when? It starts around about April until about October then when the weather closes in that's
1: more or less the end of the season back end of October sometimes we get an Indian summer sometimes the weather's better in October than what it is in June it's been like winter here the last couple of weekends
0: but on a westerly westerly presumably you still have enough in the way of shelter to drop the baits down somewhere
1: oh, well yes there is we can get shelter but you know it's, it, it's all down to the clarity of the water if the water clouds up it makes the fishing difficult you know there has been times here from january when there was 30 plus trawlers here some of the trawlers they didn't go to sea for 10 weeks at the beginning of the year so if it's not
0: suitable for a trawler to go to sea it's not suitable for a charter boat to go so what's the geography like of the seabed within your operating area give us a quick overview of what you've got access to well we've got like Drewidge bay which is soft sandy bottom and, um, and
1: Walkworth Bay, that's soft and sandy, there's flatties up there, and as you, fur- as you go further north, there's like a sandstone, uh, rough ground, Craster Skiers and Creswell Skiers.
0: They're like crops of ground that they come up like 10 metres off the bottom. So it's pretty much all heavy or hard ground once you leave the harbour mouth. It is
1: heavy ground, yeah. There used to be a place up north at Dunstanborough, which is called Craster Smooth, and that's where the majority of fish were caught in 1983 and the fish are absolutely jam-packed solid with sand eels. It's not very often you get codlings now that are full of sand eels. Whether this has got a factor in the deterioration
0: of the codlings or not, I don't know. Sand eels I'm sure are a key player in all of this, though these problems are never usually down to just one single cause. Global warming pushing species comfort bands ever further north and of course overcropping will also have played the part. But the collapse of the sand eel population has to be a major factor, and not only for predatory fish. Bird populations such as puffins also crashed when the sand eels disappeared. And this, to some large extent, then, is why you feel the North Sea cod population went into decline. Well, I think the fish stocks
1: reduced when there was a reduction in the sand eels. The bird life was suffering at one time with the lack of sand hills. and if you take the bottom of the chain away, and everything's going to suffer. The Danes were coming over here and coming in as close as 20 mile fishing for sand and taking them back to Denmark. And presumably also using them for fish meal. Yeah they use them for agricultural feed for animals,
0: fish meal, oil. There was even stories about rendering them down and using them in the power stations. What a waste. So what typically now are the species and size ranges you would expect to see over the inshore rough ground marks? We don't keep nothing under two and a
1: half pound, like uh, the legal size limit for a cod is fourteen inches. The anglers are generally quite good for keeping fish around about the sixteen inch mark which is a two and a half pound fish. A specimen off the rough ground, we've had one a fortnight ago which was thirteen pound and that was just off the hard ground. The same angler he had a ten and a half pound cod off the wreck, a twelve pound ling off the wreck and a thirteen pound cod off the hard ground. So, and what other species might you also see inshore? It's mainly codlings pouting, we do get pollock inshore, but it's mainly codlings, codlings mackerel,
0: granny fish, rats. Following on from that then, let's also now talk about the wrecks. But what sort of distance after the wrecks start, and how many have you got within comfortable striking range? The first wreck is about 200 yards from the pier ends. One of the nearest wrecks is
1: 3.6 miles off from the harbour. That was thought to be a wreck of the Horn Church and it's recently been discovered at the Horn Church in Druridge Bay. So what boils down to the fact that nobody really knows what these wrecks are, and some of them are war graves and they're getting pillaged. and the point is that you know, no, nobody knows exactly what these wrecks are. What's the best timing for the wrecks in terms of size of tide? Well, the smaller the tide, the better really for fishing the wrecks and then anything f- from like late June onwards, August fishing as well. June time we seem to get a few, well, majority of the fish caught are codlings and as the season goes on like, the codlings leave the areas and we tend to catch more ling. I think the, the cod take the bait quicker than what the ling take the baits and uh, when we're getting the ling there's not many cod about. And what sort of size range of fish are we talking about these days? Last year our best fish was 25 pound ling. The best cod was 16 and a half pound. That was caught off the ground. I had a fishing party on last year and one bloke had a 16 pound ling and he was over the moon and he thought he was going to win the sweep on the day. And about a quarter of an hour later another bloke pulled one in there and I think it was 21 pound. So he ended up the bridesmaid. <laughs>
0: there's an insight into the types of depth these wrecks are
1: typically found at. Between 45 and 60 meters.
0: With that in mind then, I'll add to the fact that most of the inshore marks are at maybe half the depth of the wrecks. What are the implications here in terms of line choice? Is it braid or should it be nylon or perhaps it doesn't really matter either way? Well if you use
1: braid you can cut the tide better. If you use that nylon it, there's a bit more drag on it if you use nylon and, and you're fishing on a charter boat It's a lot easier for the skipper to untangle all the rabbles. Obviously you're gonna get people catching up with one another if you use like really fine Fire wire or the, the other braided stuff like it's very difficult for anybody to see
0: it's that thin So your overall recommendations would be a bit of each actually <laughs> A reel you, of each yeah a reel of each Taking a slightly different tack now, in your time since 1983, what have been your observations on the extent to which marine electronics have evolved and played the part in your line of work? What effect has this had on your fishing, and by aiding the commercial fleet, perhaps on over exploitation by them? Well, at one time, a private individual couldn't buy
1: an electronic navigator. You had to hire him, you had to hire him off a decker, and it was only the commercial fishermen that could it was worth their while getting an electronic navigator Philips took Decker to court and they won their case and as a result the first navigator came out and it was called the, the Philips Yacht Navigator the electronics around about the 85 time it was a lot harder to use in the modern day electronics anybody can buy a GPS now with all the, the wrecks already in a, a memory stick so anybody can buy a, memory, a GPS with a memory stick and the wrecks are already marked on there, so where there was a little bit of skill involved in marking the wrecks and finding the
0: wrecks years ago all the hard work's been taken out by the electronics gear And by implication, that then has had a detrimental effect on fish stocks It has, because the wrecks are fished a lot more than what they used to
1: You know, years ago, the uh, it was like an adventure going outside the three mile mark <laughs> Now it's an everyday occurrence and people are out there every day and some of the wrecks are getting like fish three or four times on the same day. The only rest that they get
0: like is when there's bad weather. Do you find then that the wrecks still outfish fish the ground or do they both have the day? They both have the day. It all depends on the type of
1: parties that you get. Some people like wreck fishing and some people like ground fishing. If you want a nice relaxing day you go ground fishing. Like, right, for instance, today we had 76 fish off the wrecks, yesterday we had 91 fish off the ground. So the fish off the ground were a lot fresher, they was a lot cleaner, and the fish that we've had off the wrecks of today, like, were some of
0: them right ugly specimens. What other species might you also expect to see, both inshore and off? For example, you mentioned Benito early being caught commercially close to the harbour mouth as recently as a couple of weeks ago.
1: Well, it's very unusual for Bonito to be caught here. though There's never been a Bonito caught here on rod line. They've been caught in the salmon drift nets, but mainly it's just like cod and ling off the wrecks. Pollock, you get the odd pollock. I think if people targeted pollock a lot more on the wrecks, they'd, they'd have better results. But um, when the pollock are here, just off of Annabel, like they're close inshore, and you see a few fish too. A three pound fish here, fish like, is like a specimen. They don't go anywhere near the size they do on the south coast. You know, you, you can get codfish up to 25 pounds, can't you? What about haddock? The
0: North Sea used to be the place for them.
1: Well, the haddock, I can't remember the last time I, I've caught a haddock here. It would have been over 15 years ago, but I understand there's a few haddock being caught in the trawlers this year.
0: Two other species, which I remember from way back as being fairly regularly associated with the stretch of coast, are the lump sucker and the raised bream. Have you had any experience of either of this pair? Every year there's a,
1: there seems to be a different species that crops up. Last year, there was quite a few raised bream washed up on the shore. And as far as lump suckers are concerned, we've never caught one on a and line, but they're definitely there, like because the the, the, the netting lads see them when they're tea netting. And you often see them washed up in the
0: winter dead. So far as raised breams go, by all accounts these are deep open water fish from the Atlantic which make their way around the top of Scotland into the North Sea. Then, with the onset of winter and dropping sea temperatures, they can't seem to get away quick enough, which explains why they are sometimes found inshore in a semi comatose condition whereas the lump suckers deliberately migrate inshore in the spring to breed. Another species starting to make the headlines in recent times particularly off Whitby where they are now being deliberately targeted by anglers and with some success is the poor beagle shark. What, if any like, can you shed on that particular species? We've had two experiences of poor beagle
1: shark. We had a fellow one day who was winding a ling in and possibly it was a poor beagle, possibly it was a blue shark. I don't know what type of shark it was but it was definitely a shark It came up and took the ling off his line so that week later on in the week we went out with the rubby-dubby and we put a rubby-dubby trail out and whatever and after drifting for three hours and nothing happening we decided we were going to pack up and just as I said that one of the anglers that were aboard the boat saw this poor beagle shark going round the boat it was estimated to be between three and 400 pounds and it would have been about 9 foot long it was taking mackerel just like a trout taking like maggots we were throwing mackerel at it and it was just eating the mackerel and uh, it took me, me line I, di- I didn't want the to bake to go too deep with it I stuck on it but I didn't connect with it
0: so the other then perhaps was a potential for the future
1: yeah yeah. sometimes the drift netters get a shark in their net the trawlers they get one there's, nearly every year there's one or two poor beagles wading I think they're called salmon shark aren't they and uh, the river coke and the river allen Uh,
0: they're like prolific salmon rivers so maybe that's what attracts them to the area another question I like to ask when I do interviews of this sort is how do you see the future for the area in this case the North Sea your own port your business and boat angling generally
1: well I think there's gonna be more and more restrictions I'm quite I, think I, I, can, I can see myself going for another maybe 10 years at the very most if we're allowed to go that long. I think there's going to be that many restrictions put on us with marine conservation zones and possibly there might be like bag limits enforced on us. I don't think the future looks very rosy at all.
0: That said, looking at America's experience where following a virtual collapse of inshore angling stocks and a number of key locations, harsh restrictions of the type you mentioned plus licence fees, which in their case are actually used to enforce and improve, if done properly, would perhaps be no bad thing, looking at the quality of the rod and line fishing they have now. I think American laws, there's some
1: common sense in the American laws, and I don't think laws in this country are made on common sense. I think there's no laws that help the normal sort
0: of working bloke. To put a slightly different, more historical slant on things now, I'd like to bring in Upholder's previous owner, an ex-lifeboat in Rodney Burge, to give us a flavour of the rich fishing history of the area.
2: I've lived an animal all my life, as you can tell by the accent anyway, but I left home at 15 to join the Royal Navy, I went to a place called HMS Ganges, with a famous old uh, shore establishment, and I came out nine years later, I bought myself out of the Navy because I wanted to go and fishing. And uh, if I wanted to go out the fishing, I wanted my own boat, obviously, you know. So, as soon as I come with the Navy, well, I was ashore for a month or two, and then I got a berth up at highmouth hard-grown trail, and bobbins, on the bobbins and whatnot, and seen netting. And then I got to birth doing a berth doing at Amble. But in the meantime, I had joined the lifeboat crew at Amble in 69, when I come with the Navy. And... Uh, I rose through the ranks, on, well, I've gone through the history of the, ramp, the lifeboat, anyway, my life, in the in lifeboat. And now I've been in 42 and a half years with the lifeboats. And as I see I started as a crewman. And in 1986, I think it was, I was elected second coxswain of the lifeboat. And in 1992, uh, on the retirement of the, the principal coxswain, I took over his job until 1999, when I was 55 and I had to retire. I've st- still kept an operational presence with the Amble Lifeboat and at present I'm a lifeboat operations manager for the Amble station. As I say, the fishing, that's another, the, everything is just run parallel, you know, with the lifeboat, your whole life it's like two separate lives running in parallel. And as I say, I was at the fishing all the time and uh, mainly at the scene net which is a, a specialised sort of fishing. and We used to get big big bags of fish and whatnot those days. You could stir the buggers with a stick. And then in the mid-70s, I had saved enough money to buy my own boat. I was in partnership at first with a Coast Guard. And in eighty, I think it was 1980, I bought his share of him. We had a slight disagreement. which uh, we just about punching through us, he actually. And uh, I bought his share of him. And I had that boat until the uh, end of 1996 when I got her decommissioned and then I bought a boat where you're standing on now, the upholder she was called the Amadeus those days, uh, I bought her from uh, Weymouth, from a fisherman down at Weymouth and uh, I had her for about 2 or 3 years and then I sold her own and in the meantime I bought a cobble to get into the lobster pots with I'd beat the lobster pots on the upholder but she was very expensive to run and uh, I wanted a cheaper boat so I bought a cobble and then after about four or five years the doctor advised me because of just pulling myself to pieces to kind of shore. So I went to shore, but I'm still continuing with the lifeboat, that's my life up to now. So how far it's going to go on in the future I've got no idea. <laughs> Tell us a
0: bit about what the quality of the fishing was like around here back in those early days. I can remember robin line fishing the main Yorkshire ports back in the 70s, 80s and possibly on into the 90s, just as they started to slip into decline. Prior to the past 15 years it was quite literally out of this world. But I know from an article of yours which I have recently read, that what we experience pales into insignificance compared to your earliest recollections.
2: When I first got my boat, uh, the trawler, the Nobles, uh, we went principally uh, trawling for prawns and whitefish and that was in the 70s and you can, the fish were so pretty thick those days you could stir them with a stick just about and um, fishing was good the only trouble was that it was too good because we had smaller meshes those days and if you had this the regulation size now if you had had it in the 70s there would have still been a lot of fish I've seen us get up to 6 ton in one haul of, of dogfish 6 ton uh, on, on my little trailer, and I've seen us get five ton of code mm. in one hell. Just, uh, it was as thick as that. Well, that was through the week. We obviously used to work weekends as well at the trailing, but we tried fishing on the wrecks one day for a bit of fun. Just drifting over the wrecks with the, you know, the feathers and uh, the, r- the ripper way, or the motor, we used to call them here. Jiggers, is that the right name? Jiggers. And we just about filled the boat with cod and ling and uh, lithe, which are huge pollock. And that was just the the, the crew of the boat. So we started taking fishing trips out at the weekends. And that just snowballed. And I've seen us get 10 people on on the boat. And I've seen us come in with 60 boxes, which is 6,000 pound of fish. 6,000 pound of fish gutted between 10 men. And that was those days, like. So, uh, um... Aye, that was it, but since then, I don't know why, but there's been a, a, a decline in the... Well, I don't know why, they have been caught. Well, but in the thing. in the 70s, on the wrecks, it, it was note for three of us to go out on the boat, me, me myself and me two crew, and instead of going trawling, we used to catch more fish, big fish, up to 40-odd pound weight, with, with the, the three feathers on. And it, 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 it was it was not unusual, people didn't believe you now, for for the three of us to have three fish on each in 50 fathom of water. And each man was helling up nearly 100 weight of fish at a time from 50 fathom. And people do not believe you now, but that, that was fact. And we used to take the the, the fishing parties out, you know, the, the charter parties, we used to get them from all over the place Yorkshire, Lancashire, all, all over the place. And we didn't even advertise the you know, just snowballed and that went on for quite a few years and then other people started taking notice of what we were catching and uh, that spoiled it because then they started putting the gill nets on the wrecks and that was the death nail for them up here so, well as I say, that was my trial, I got rid of the trial and I continued on the uphold i taking fishing trips out and uh, we were quite successful then but it was we well, would getting the cream off the off the wrecks by then, you know. Uh, some of the, it was unbelievable the f- the fishing we used to have, and I've seen us, as I said before got six thousand pound of fish gutted between ten people, ten men,
0: on on the boat. And how far back in time was that?
2: <sighs> late seventies, seventies, uh, early late seventies, early eighties. It was brilliant fishing. In fact, there was one time. These, this party had, a, had about 50 boxes with me, which is about 5,000 pound of fish, which what's that, about 2 tonne, two and a half tonne nearly. And the next time they come out, there were young Paul, Paul had took them out, he was the youngest of my, of my crew, and they only had 35 boxes, and they were complaining. You know, like 3,500 pound of fish, and they were complaining. So, so you getting that new, And that was it, uh, and Davy's taken over, and Davey runs full time on this boat, he'll pull down fishing trips, and he does quite well in the summer. But it's not nowhere n- near what it used to be like.
0: What a lot of people won't appreciate is the simplicity and to some extent inaccuracy of the electronics back then. There was no GPS, yet the catches were absolutely breathtaking. So tell us a little bit about the early instruments at your disposal.
2: Well, nowadays, you could put a monkey in the wheelhouse and, the, and he'll be able to find the wrecks. <laughs> Now, those days we had the Mark 12 Decker, which was notoriously inaccurate. And you used to find the wreck sometimes first pinpoint at straight over, And the next time, if you when you drifted off it, sometimes it took you half an hour to find it again because the needles used to vary, you know, the sig- the pulse width or uh, the signal and whatnot. It wasn't so bad when you were maybe five or six miles off the shore, off the land. You could get your landmarks. Uh, we got quite, you know, uh, take notice of the landmarks and you used to run in on that and used to pick the wrecks up. First time, but nowadays, well, as I say, we had the Mark 12 deck? I think we got the Mark 21, which was more reliable. And then, uh, when did I get the GPS? Must have been about 1989 or 90. We had the GPS in, and that transformed everything. Once you got it on the GPS, Alpha, that that was that was brilliant, you know. And this is what the valve got new And as I see, that's channel. Nowadays, every man and his dog has GPS, and as long as they've got the readings, which are readily available anywhere you want to get them, you, you can find the wrecks. Although, a lot of the time, they're going on the wrecks, and it, 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 it'll be just as we love going on the hard hard bottom and getting a few fish, because the fish they're getting from the wrecks, you know, they don't seem to be much bigger than what they're getting on the rough ground. What was the quality of the rod and line fishing of the rough ground like back then? it was good. Uh, it was good. I've seen us go out uh, on what we call the Craster skiers, and which, was, which are five miles off the land at Craster and from from the skiers right in out of the land it's all hard bottom, you know, rock and uh, fish, you can get them all over the place. Uh, it was it was amazing the, the codlins, and they were good codlins. you know, up to maybe 10 and 12 pound weight which, which is a good fish, you know. Then unfortunately Things started to slide into the population crash during the
0: 1990s, which I mentioned earlier.
2: It took a dive, I. It, it seems to have recovered a bit this last couple of years, so hopefully that is on the rise. I mean, there's not so many boats fishing now, because in the summer at the trawling, or the trawling I should say in Amble, at the trawling we used to walk at what the, the local groans across the smooth in the middle bank and the sea horses bank and places like this and I've seen us get 80 or 90 boxes in 20 minutes towing. Well these boats, you're not allowed to catch those now. You're not allowed to catch that fish now. So if they are there, at least they're surviving, you know, to spawn for another day. So hopefully things are on the increase, you know. Clearly,
0: commercial fishing has had its part to play in these population problems. But are there any other underlying reasons you can identify
2: which may also have played the part? Obviously, commercial fishing. Uh, you know, as a commercial fisherman we sail for many, many years, we always blame everybody else. Each boat, as it stands alone, will not cause the decline. But collectively, the, the catching power was phenomenal. And uh, that must have had a, a major, well, it had a major effect on, on the fishing stocks. But I never put that as, a, as 100% of the problem i in pollution. There's growns out there now, what we call the half-hour ground, just the back of the crooked island. In the winter, we used to get loads of haddock, the haddock there on the hard ground trail, and there's just not a haddock to be seen now, and there's, there's been nobody fishing for them. So what's kept them away, I've, I've no idea. I could only put it due to pollution.
0: When the cod made the most recent comeback, it seemed to happen all of a sudden. From nowhere, there not only seemed to be big numbers of fish about, but also good fish amongst them too. These fish had to have grown in numbers and size somewhere, not only away from traditional rod and line areas, but also away from commercial attention too. How then did these fish grow in peace then slip back in
2: under the radar? And
0: more importantly, where do you think they came from?
2: It's the decline of the fishing fleet. I mean, the the, the fishing fleet here is half what it used to be in Amble. Shields, has just a fraction of them, even Eyemouth. See, Hoosers hasn't got a trail in in the port now. I think there's one, is there now? And, you know, they used to be 15 or 20. and This must have had an effect in, in, in the last 15 or 20 years. I mentioned to Dave
0: earlier that during the North Sea slump, some of the Yorkshire ports in particular started looking at other ways of keeping the anglers coming, by exploring areas and trialling techniques which they previously hadn't needed to do, but not, apparently, at Amble. From that point of view,
2: here it remained pretty much business as usual. What's your take on that? Just carry on doing what they know always did. Davy tried anchoring up for a while, didn't you, Davy? But he didn't have a, a great lot of success with that. You know, just trying the same methods as what they're going for conga in the in the Channel and things like that. But it didn't seem to pay off here. Why? I don't know. I've, I've no idea. Let me take you now to
0: a recent TV programme you may or may not have seen by chef Hugh Fernley Whittingstall. I watched the whole lot, I. The main thrust of that programme was the practice of discards, in other words, throwing back dead prime fish which were not within a commercial boat's quota limits. At the time he was on a North Sea boat and obviously the skipper was playing to the camera to make what is a legitimate point. So in light of what has gone before, in your opinion, to what extent a commercial fisherman right in pressing for the current restrictions to be lifted?
2: The quotas could maybe be relaxed, I wouldn't see it lifted. They could be more flexible. I mean, I haven't been at the Fishing now for a few years. They could, uh, the powers that be could be more flexible in managing the quotas because what that Hugh Farnley Whittenson filmed was just sheer lunacy, but that happens every day, all over the North Sea and the Irish Sea. It happens every day in hundreds of boats. So there must be a huge... Disc- well, there is a huge you know, discard problem, and um, but... What the answer is, I've no idea. The implication given by that programme, though, was that the North Sea is now full of cod again. Well, I wouldn't say it's full of cod. It's improved in recent years, and let's hope it keeps on improving so that maybe it's going to relax the quotas a bit in the future. But, you know, they're still going to have to keep controls on it. That's what happened in the Crown Banks. Uh, they closed them off completely. I think that was about 1978, was it, not they closed them off completely and they reopened them again a few years later and under strict controls. And the fishermen there are making more money than what they did before, or they're, they're better off under the strict controls. So maybe if they could sort something out on the same lines here, maybe it's not put a ban on, total ban, but, you know, just give a, a strict, well, to be honest, I've, I've really got any idea as to the answer, you know. there's Not many people no. Have. no the final question I have for you, again,
0: is another one that I asked Dave earlier. How do you see the future of the North Sea, Amble as a port, and
2: boat angling generally in the area? What do I see? For Amble. Well, if it carries on like it's been the last couple of years, I think it, ca- it can grow. Amble is certainly more popular now. I've, I've just been working around the quay there today, the, the, the and it's, there's hundreds of people, whereas ten years ago, you'd have been lucky to see any, anybody on a Sunday afternoon. There's hundreds of people and more people are getting aware of the sea as a, a means of, you know, for getting their own pleasure. And, um, as I say, the angling, uh, as long as Davy gets his fish and whatnot, he'll, he'll continue to grow. You know. what about the cod stocks? Well, I've never considered that the angling boats will hammer the cod stocks very much. There's one trail I could catch more in a day than... Most of the, the Northumberland sea angling fleet could catch in it in season, and that's a fact. So you're optimistic, quite optimistic about that. I mean, I'm not going to get the job, but uh, anyone who has a boat and that that way inclined, I, I could see if if they didn't want to do it full, you know, if they didn't want to do full time in the summer, if they've got a fishing boat, they can go out the trail and in the winter. And just, in fact, there's two or three boats do that, and they take the fishing trips up in the summer, like what I used to do in my sail, thought he had a Switching back to Dave now for the final
0: word, have you any unashamed self-promotion to hand out to prospective customers who might be listening in? I've got a website, and it's called Amble Boat Charter. Telephone number is
1: 01665 712561. The mobile number which I carry on the boat is 07971 108737. The details are also on the Northumberland Tourist Information Board
0: website. Just to answer to that, I understand that yours is the only full-time charter angling boat at the port, with three commercial boats also taking parties out at weekends. Yes, I think people diversify into other things. There's one bloke who does potting,
1: salmon fishing. You know, there are expensive things to run charter boats. If you've got two jobs, there's quite a few people who've got charter boats that have got two
0: jobs. Uh, I'm in a fortunate position that I only need to do one. The main thing that I'm going to take away from this interview is hope. If, as has happened, the North Sea can climb back from the doldrums in the impressive way that it has, then hopefully the resilience of fast-growing, fast replenishing fish species, with the right encouragement and help, can rise phoenix-like from the ashes in one part of the country, then why not everywhere? A double thank you then to both Dave Bilf and Rodney Burge for the 30 and more year history of fishing along the Northumbrian coast.